Hi guys, welcome to the Alternative Podcast. This is episode 27. Um, we've got a special guest on today, um, Gleb. He's originally from Russia, left Russia in 2016, lived in various other countries. Um, he now currently resides in Georgia. Um, so Gleb, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Cam and Aaron. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for me to speak some, with someone outside of Georgia uh, and uh, just thinking about our first, first meeting, I was reflecting on my own experience uh, and uh, I was trying to count the countries I lived in, not many, but it's interesting that um, my first, like I, as you said, I was born in the USSR in Russia uh, the communist country, uh, the, the socialist country. And then I went to study in the U.S. in the 90s. So I left the USSR and I returned to Russia when it became an independent state. And then I lived in uh, Russia transitioning into democracy. And, uh, you know, I observed the failure of democracy as well. So I lived in two Russias. And I left Russia in 2016 and lived um, in the UK, in Belfast. I was doing my uh, work with uh, one of the banks there. And then in 2018, end of 18, I moved into Georgia because um, I didn't want to return to Russia. I already thought that, you know, I... I, I want to live somewhere else. I want to try new experiences. And also partly because I didn't want to return. I was feeling the, the changes that were happening in, in, in Russia. And I thought maybe, you know, and I visited Georgia before. I think it's a, it's a lovely country. And uh, I have friends here. And, uh, you know, everything worked out that way that, you know, three years, almost four years on and I live in Georgia and Tbilisi. So I can talk about my experiences with, uh, with, uh, with in the countries and talk a little bit about each country, but also the transformation that I observed during the, you know, my visits in and out of the free world and to into developing world and back and... Well, Gleb, how old were you when you left Russia the first time? So I, I was uh, 19, I suppose. I think if that's correct. Yes, 20 or 19. So I left as an exchange student. And that was um, the first program, one of the first programs of exchanging students in the uh USSR, between the US and the USSR, part of the, I think, presidential initiative, Gorbachev and, uh, and, and Reagan. And then uh, that was interesting because that obviously are the formative years and leaving the, you know, one regime and going into a completely new regime was uh, quite formative and, and fascinating for me. So I studied economics. I, you know, I'm trained as an economist. 
And I do uh, also HR work recently. So I've been doing HR for maybe 10, 15 years or so. Human resources, mainly learning and development, but also some something around employee engagement and uh, coaching managers. What was life like growing up in the uh, USSR? So uh, where do I start? Uh, spooky dentists or porky pig cars, uh, clunky and, uh, but it, it was, um, you know, it's a good question actually, because uh, a lot of young people, uh, people that I meet and who are surprised, but what's going on and what's happening with the country recently, uh, some of them speak highly of the USSR or spoke highly or, you know, have some sense of nostalgia, um, but uh, uh, I think it was, if, if I were to pick one word, I think it was uh, quite dull or quite heavily regulated, uh, bleak maybe, because uh, not only because the deficit and difficulty to find normal regular products or clothing right because people try to find things that were brought from from the west especially clothing not much food but clothing definitely uh, and you had to you know you had to like the life was predictable the life was you could expect certain living standards right it was Everyone feel, felt safe, but also a bit of miserable at the same time. If you were not well connected with, uh, with the Communist Party or if you were not in some shadow economy, I think for regular people, the future was guaranteed, like it, get your education, which was quite, I think it was good. Um, but then like every step of your life is almost predetermined and you just follow the rules. You don't do anything that's forbidden or you don't, you behave like the communist party wants you to behave. And basically you're a certain life. Um, not something that people really, not all people really appreciated that is, is and also in the Communist Party itself, I think the reforms started because of we had this uh, gerontocracy, is that the word, the old people ruling, right? And, and they, you know, the, the communist bosses kind of occupied the higher ranks and it was difficult for young people to progress. And I think that's where reforms started. Aside from the, you know, the economical parts of it, the oil prices that went down. So with you having obviously lived in the West as well, there's a lot of people at the moment in the West, especially in, in the US, who are hoping for socialism to come to the US. Um, what's your opinion on socialism in the US? Do you think a good idea do you think it will work do you think or have you got anything to tell or to to advise on the people who who are wishing it 
in the West? Interesting, because actually I think I met more people sympathizing with uh, socialism in the UK rather than in the US, but maybe it depends on each person's experience. Uh, that was surprising, definitely, because I felt uh, people have no idea what they're dreaming about. Uh, and, you know, we had discussions with my friends about that and uh, sometimes, and you know, with acquaintances too. And sometimes people think of it like they idealize it. Um, and they think that there were made mistakes and maybe, you know, we will build the proper socialism. We will avoid the mistakes we've made. But if you look at the history of socialism, you wouldn't find too many successful socialist countries um, or countries that accept communist ideology, except maybe for China, but it's, it's interesting with China because they embraced capitalism at the same time with the communist party and the helm, they actually, actually introduced capitalistic institutions. That's what helped the communists, you know, the, the raise the standard, to raise the standard of living. And this is remarkable. But all other experiments, I, I'm not sure there are any successful implementations. And I think in these discussions, people more like if you try to break down the topic, what is this socialism to you? And then when you talk about um, what they mean by building socialism, it's actually simple things like uh, available healthcare, education, equal opportunities for people. And they're good things, right? And a lot of liberal democracies, which are capitalist countries, they, they're trying to build these things uh, with different success, granted. But in, if you look at the Scandinavia, I think they pride themselves as, as an equitable society. Um, and they have, I think, is it that they have the highest happiness index or whatever this metric is. But people are happy there and they have, they have to work. They, it's, it's impossible just to, you know, um, to just use the system, uh, to work the system, right? Uh, well, possible maybe for some people, but the generally accepted attitude is that if you work hard, you can achieve a lot in the capitalist society and still have many perks of socialism available to you. Hmm. Where do you think um, these social, where, where countries have experimented with socialism in the past, where do you think it's gone wrong for them? Where do you think... Um, where do you think? Why do you think socialism has failed? Is it because the governments have had too much power? Um, corruption got sort of messed up the whole uh, ideology that these people had. Where do you think it went wrong? I think the main failure is trying to control everything. And when, like, I can speak maybe for 
like from the experience of me living in in Russia, I think the failure was that the economic failure, I think, was the main thing. And I think it also the underlying probably causes idealizing ideology because the central planning system, when you try to tell each factory how much of what they need to produce, and then you tell other factories or or retail chains what they need to buy at what price, uh, this kind of regulation is excessive and you can't you know, you can't be so prescriptive in the modern world. People will want variety. They want to, you know, to get the Levi's and Coca-Cola and they want to go to McDonald's. So it's, I think the the hearts were lost as well because, you know, people lived okay, but they felt like something that the government is not honest and the government is trying to hide something from them. And that's where the double speak came about and the anecdotes. I think someone was saying that anecdotes ru ruined <laughs> the USSR because people laughed at things. Um, not very good things, but you know, Russian people try, try to find uh, bright and funny things in, in, in even the, the bleak environment because that's how we survive. Mm -hmm. really enjoy. So what was your, obviously going as an exchange student over to America, I don't know what your perception of America was when you was living in Russia compared to when you actually moved to US. How, what was it a shock or was you expecting what it was what you went into? I think it was more or less predictable in terms of the I think the most striking element was the discovery that you know what respect means and personal distance in the USSR we didn't have that a lot and People were told what to do and how they should behave and even what they need to think, right? Uh, it's an authoritarian, coming from an authoritarian regime, you kind of, you prepare for, you know, the freedom, but you really have to experience it from, from the experiential perspective rather than read about it in some newspapers or in television and that distance I felt it's a good thing like people respect you for who you are they they're really interested in your own opinion because uh, sometimes you know in in our Eastern European culture or if, if that's a right way to say but in the to people coming from the totalitarian regimes um, it could be an interesting change that, you know, people can speak freely, they can um, do what they want with their lives. They don't have to always look at some grown-ups or <laughs> communist party or someone telling them what to 
to. So I think that was important. And personal distance as well, like even in the physical context, you are talking to an American, right? You stand, you keep some personal space. The distance, it's, it's bigger than in most countries. That was, I think, something that struck me then. And um, I suppose going back to what you were saying about China and the fact they've set up their Communist Party in a slightly different way, do you think that's going to make... Do you think that's making the world a reason why it's lasting much, much longer and it, and it looks like it's going to last? Well, you can't really see an end in sight in, in for China's regime because it seems like it's set up quite solid. But looking back at the USSR, did that seem like it was set up at the time as solid as China is today? Yeah, yeah. I think they they were really smart at adapting. And they... Uh, was it Dan Xiaoping who, you know, who started the reforms and... Uh, the foundation is that they have power that has to be changed. So even in a communist regime, if you have this institution that your government or your party leader has to change, uh, I think that's that's really important. So it's it's an institution that we lack, for example, in the in Russia that. There is no succession planning, or there is no succession. It's also personalized and dependent just on one person, uh, which seemed to be very different from from China until recently that she uh, uh, adopted this, you know, <laughs> unlimited power. I think. Was it last year or this year? They agreed that he can rule indefinitely. So that's a risk. Yeah, that's a risk to the system. If you don't have a mechanism that can change your rulers, um, then you don't have the feedback loop between the population and the government, and then something will eventually break. Yeah. So, uh, God. Um, in regards to Russia, they are considered, well, as far as I know, they're considered a democracy. But Putin has been in power for how long now? And how does he manage to retain that status for such a long period of time? Yeah, I don't know who considers Russia a democracy now. But formally, uh, Russia has a constitution. Russia has freedoms spelled out in that constitution and courts, uh, you know, different branches of power, but nothing of that really works. So actually the USSR had a constitution too. Uh, and it was arguably, I think, one of the more advanced constitutions in the world. Uh, but it wasn't followed, like Stalin's constitution was just a mockery uh, because everything was different in real life. So how Putin has come to be, for I think, tw 23 years in, in power right now. So it was gradually. Um, 
it's a sad story about like the 90s and the reforms that were made, the economic reforms, I think, were most significant and remarkable, but they lacked political reforms like to to really um, to reflect on the Soviet past and to talk and uncover and condemn the dark uh, sides of the history, I think, and the role of the KGB in that history. So there were some voices, but unfortunately they were not the majority of voices who warned about the danger of leaving everything as it is and allowing KGB to get away with everything they did during the 70 years in power. And that was a huge mistake, obviously, as we found out now. So Putin is a student of uh, KGB, but also uh, the mob, like he <laughs> learned from, from the mob and from the KGB, and now he uh, built something completely authoritarian and people, and I agree with the assessment that it's a fascist regime right now. Uh, a lot of people were not taking lightly this definition because of the fact that Russia was very, you know, that the, the, the sacrifice during the Second World War was enormous. Uh, and people were, and, and still people are in denial that Russia is a fascist, fascist regime, but you can open the books and you can uh, look at the different definitions and you can, I think, Timothy Schneider, uh, a historian and a writer, I think he, uh, he breaks down it nicely, what are the traits and how they unfortunately, uh, are present in modern Russia. So we have elections, we have, but there is no mechanism to change power. It's all personalized, it's all dependent on one strong man. And people are not really keen to change it. What's, what's more worrisome, that uh, by and large, Putin is supported. Mm. Why is that? Why... why... Has he got? Because if he was to, if Putin was to lead another country, for example, um, well, England or US, he wouldn't be supported even close to the amount he supported for running Russia. What What's the reason why is it? Because he's seen as better than what there has been previously, or is there another reason? I think part of the of his popularity is. Um, the economic environment, the high commodity prices in the uh, thousands, two thousands, and this, you know, windfall of petrodollars, I think they definitely helped. And he built his, uh, like, the, the economic growth that happened in, in the 2000s was I think all because of the reforms that were made in the 90s. So he's basically piggybacking on the uh, the reforms and the trends that uh, were uh, founded. They that the foundation was laid in in the 90s. So and he's taking credit for that. People think that it's all about Putin that they started to you know to buy new cars to go abroad and. 
and spend a lot and do all the fancy stuff. Uh, so, so that's the economic side of it. But the political side of it is also interesting because he is quite skillful at manipulating uh, people and and exploiting the popular ideas about the great Soviet past or the great Russian history. So he played that quite well and that resonated with, uh, with most people. So they were, even as the economic situation started to deteriorate in, in recent years, the problem with uh, there is still quite large support for his uh, foreign policy. Like people approve of his, maybe they don't, don't approve the war. We will talk about that later. But by and large, like the the dream to be to to remain a superpower, I think it's still it's still there. And and he got away with all the economic difficulties, and people are ready to go through hardships because they think that you know they can trade their personal well-being for the for the good of the country. And he's playing that. Um, I think. People will be realizing that uh, that the link is broken, that it's not the right trade to make, and that they need to wake up. But the process is very slow. So at the moment, we're seeing um, Putin and Xi Jinping seem to be quite close, um, and they seem to be building quite a strong relationship. How? Powerful and how strong is Russia at this moment in time with that relationship with China? So, how strong is Russia as a country, knowing that they have China there, who they can sort of look for for support? Um, I think it's um, it's interesting, Aaron. I think the the country is either strong or, or weak in itself by itself, right? Uh, but as you say it could be supported by a larger power and it could feel that it is stronger with the friendship or alliance with that power. Uh, but that's just an impression, right? So the country is definitely weak because of the stagnation of, I was saying that this kind of, uh, the power that was the the wealth that was accumulated uh, during the good years, right? It's been wasted now at a tremendous speed. I think that we are past, maybe we are moving back into the 90s or the USSR years uh, in terms of economic might. Political might, I think, again, they overestimate their influence consistently overestimate, but I think the wake-up call was this uh, arrest warrant last week, was it? Uh, so I think that was maybe one wake-up call, a huge one. But Xi Jinping's visit, uh, everyone was like, the Kremlin propaganda tried to spin it as the huge success and, and everything, but we could feel it's actually not because the 
I think the visit was not as long as it was planned. It was a short. It was shortened. And then after they talked and signed some agreements, and then see, I think he reinforced that Russia should be committed to non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, and like he he tried to influence uh, that. And then after he left, Putin went to Lukashenko, the Belarusian authoritarian monster, another fascist, and he said that. You know, we will try to move some tactical nukes to Belarus. So I think that tells a lot about the dynamics between the two leaders and what type of support is there. And also, if you look at the nature of this relationship, uh, Russia is reliant on China in terms of they need to sell uh, the the energy, right? Uh, and they they need India or China, someone to buy it. And uh, the prices are obviously not favorable for Russia. And Russia has been like helping China so much. I think even before the war, and that that's like they they bought so much natural gas um, for just ridiculous prices. And I don't think it's a like an equal relationship at all. So it's being exploited. Um, I think the China knows the weaknesses and they know that they can bargain. And they, I think, have some. Uh, they have some. Uh, they're not talking about that publicly, but I know in some of the maps they have in, in China, they show some. Russian current Russian territories of their own. So I think there is a territorial dispute as well between China and Russia. And I think that at some point it will come up. Not to mention the existing like how much timber or how much forest they move from Siberia into Russia. And again, what type of uh, economic relationship is that, that people are so dependent in the Far East on China going in and, you know, cutting the trees and sending it all to... Yeah, yeah. China. Um, I've not heard about this. China are considering some of Russia's land to be of their territory. Yeah, that's true. That's, um, well, that's a recipe for disaster, obviously sooner or later yes yes i think uh i don't think that like currently they haven't voiced anything uh in terms of their geographical expansion maybe apart from taiwan we haven't heard from them like they have ambitions for or claims for some territories but that's potentially something that's you know it's a time bomb i think and they have effectively they maybe they don't need the territorial expansion to be honest because of the type of contracts favorable contracts they already sign and they get all the resources all they need without expanding so yeah i guess they'll operate in a similar way to how the us have operated over the past 100 years they've not really taken actually own territory but 
they do call the shots or used to call the shots when it comes to certain things like what happens in Saudi Arabia, how they sell their own oil, they sell that in the petrodollar or not. Um, so I guess China will use a similar sort of strategy as how the US yes. have been doing. Yes, I think the soft power and economic power, I think it's a smarter strategy for countries um, to expand their influence um, in a nonviolent way. Uh, and that's important. I think it's one of the advantages of the globalization is that as the world becomes smaller, uh, people, you know, are forced to cooperate and they are incentivized to live in peace rather than come to these clashes and think that by territorial expansion they, they can get, get more power. It's the opposite of that. They just lose the reputation and everyone hates them after these annexations. Yeah. And then the amount of resources they use in the actual process as well. Exactly. So the damage is uh, is in the modern world is huge, but the, you know the people in the Kremlin they still have this mindset uh, of territorial thinking, or that the modern world is a zero sum game. Like if they get something, someone has to lose. But actually, it's just such a stupid notion that you know. To be powerful, to be respected, you have to use brutal force. It's just outdated and uh, it's immoral, first of all, but also it's not smart. Yeah, because obviously the internet plays a factor in, in today's day and then globalization plays another factor. So, whereas in the past it would be quite a, uh, a simple chess move to take territory, whereas now you've got to think of a, a number of different external factors before you make a move. Um, I guess with well, with the China side, do you have an opinion on whether or not they're actually going to make a move on Taiwan? Oh, uh, maybe I should have. I should have um, said the disclaimer even before we started, that I'm no political expert. Unlike some of your guests before me, uh, I am, you know, as I said, someone who lived and traveled, but I don't have uh, a crystal ball, of course. Nobody has it, actually. We can only speculate. We can only think. It just, it's interesting. It's fascinating in this situation and building on the, the our topic about cooperation and expansion, I think. I was expecting that uh, Beijing would think about, again, building economic ties and kind of soft power around this situation. And it doesn't seem, even now, it doesn't seem, despite all the uh, nuclear, like nuclear or military saber rattling, I think Despite of all that, it just doesn't make sense to occupy a country in the 21st century. To me, personally, I don't know what, what the benefit would be. Like, they have obviously remarkable 
semiconductor technology there, right? And, um, but there are people working in these factories and people are used to freedom. And they want to, like, they would want to maybe work in a country where they are respected, where they have, you know, do whatever they want. They want to be... And they, everything is taken away from them and they don't have freedoms after that. So I don't think that they will be as productive in those manufacturing facilities as people who are genuinely happy and they, you know, they come to work to create. And why would they, you know, have another supervisor in, in telling them what to do? I did think it's not compatible with uh, how the modern, modern work, modern economy, the world works. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's where, rather than taking a country over, you could look at forming better, better partnerships with countries, similar to what the West do anyway. That you have decent partnerships with decent countries, and it keeps every it keeps a nice sort of balance, I guess. In a sense, as well, that's what China do, and that's what it looks like they've done with Russia. Is tried just to keep a, a bit of a balanced partnership where it's not too heavy of a partnership, so other so it disrupts their other partnerships with other countries because that will be. Well, that'll be that'll be basically the end. If it's a it's a it's a difficult game, I think the geopolitics side because there's a lot of big egos in terms of the countries all trying to ramp up at once. So keeping that balance of partnerships is difficult. But don't doesn't China also have good relations with Ukraine? Because they've got good relations with Ukraine and they've got good relations with Russia now. Is, is that right? Yes. Uh, yes. I think they try to uh, uh, to have good relations with everyone, with the US. And, you know, despite all the talk about the contradictions, and I think they're still the, the biggest economic partner and they will lose, they will have to lose more from the con conflict and they would have to gain. And Ukraine is the largest European country. Obviously, they have lots of plans there and they, uh, I think they, they should be thinking about the reconstruction as well, rebuilding Ukraine after the war. And who else, who better at building stuff than China? So I think they have that in mind. Uh, but they're in good relationship with, 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 I think, I don't know a country that they're in conflict with, to be honest. So, Gleb, just um, a question about, about the war in Ukraine. What are, what is uh, Putin's ambitions? Is he, is he trying to sort of reignite the USSR spirit and go and um, take over countries and expand territory is that his main goal from um starting his war in ukraine 
um, it's difficult to say what exactly drives him, uh, but it seems that he's delusional and he he has some, I think someone saying that he has some spiritual influencers, uh, like from conservative circles, from, you know, religious people who talk to him in terms of like the fate of Russia and that you know I think there is some of that um, the other is he's completely delusional about how the modern world works uh, we touched on some of that too um, like maybe some anecdotal evidence he doesn't read internet he gets his uh, assistants or whoever is in his admin, they print out internet and they bring it to him uh, in a nice red folder. <laughs> so what kind of mindset is behind that thinking is, is you can imagine probably. So a person who is uh, like the old school uh, KGB. He he was not even successful at KGB. Some people say, but like he got something that he could from it, but he was not a remarkable officer. But then, complete mediocrity. But then he, um, I think he was good at manipulating people and building his team of loyal yes people. Uh, and then at some point, this bubble, these yes people, they surrounded him with, with some illusion of, of, of the picture. And he, he is detached with reality. I think Angela Merkel, who visited him in early, what was it? A few years ago, maybe not a few years, but when, when was it? But it's probably after the Crimea, after the annexation of Crimea, he, she said that he's just living in his own reality. He just doesn't hasn't a clue what's going on. So that that's part of it. Another part of it, and also the pandemic. Some people say that because he is so paranoid about COVID, and he surrounded him himself with this strict procedures, uh, barriers, disinfection, all sorts of medical tests for his surroundings, for his close circle. And, you know, people were struggling to get to, to get an audience with. And you saw that table, that huge long table that he was uh, sitting at, talking again with his uh, defense minister and like with his people who should be like he should be having a close contact with them but I think there is lack of trust paranoia about this uh, COVID I think they have influenced his mental ability so I, I don't think he's sane I think that uh, there is some personality I'm, again I'm not a specialist here but but I think there is definitely an impact on his personality after 23 years of unlimited power. Mm. 
and he's led he's led by fear right so he's always led people in even his close circle if he if he works in this way where they've got to print off documents and show them him for his for his sort of way of learning how biased is that information going to be because i wouldn't want to be the person handing him some bad news in an envelope i would rather just give him good news in an envelope so like you said he's going to be so delusional he's going to see the world in a completely different way to how it's actually things are run and things are going and that's why maybe he was so scared yeah of covid and doing this fear-based this with this amount of power and keeping everyone in check purely with fear I mean, people who are working with him or for him have no, I can imagine, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine they've got no sort of passion working for him. They're just scared. Um, and, and that's just going to create, that's just going to create paranoia because you're just going to always be worried. You can't trust the people around you because you know none of them are actually loyal in a passionate way. They're loyal out of fear of death to them or even to their family. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think the the biggest manifestation of the fear in his circle was for me uh, on that meeting with his security council. Uh, there is a recording of that um, where they, like, he talks and then he asks his uh, uh, his associates to speak. The people who are in in charge of national security, and you could see a person. Uh, that was, I can't remember the the last name, but one of the you know the highest officials in the uh, in the security apparatus. He was standing there with his knees shaking in that meeting, and he couldn't say a word. I think they they were definitely and they are still scared of him. Yeah, because he's, he's also got that mob mentality, hasn't he? So he's come from the mob, the mafia, or the mob, or what you call it, and how he's running the country. So, d- if Russia are successful with their plans in Ukraine, do you think? I'm just trying to understand what uh, NATO's motivations are for preventing Ukraine, not for their own strategic sort of planning on their side of things. Do you think if Putin does conquer Ukraine, do you think he will then look at other European countries and think, I'll take this one as well? Or do you think it stops at Ukraine? Yeah, I think that was a possibility uh, before 2022. Like that was probably his way of thinking that uh, he got away with um, occupying, like, first of all, Chechnya, right? Uh, one of the Russian regions famous for a brutal regime of their local, like he crushed any independence movement that was there. And that was a brutal war, like devastating for, for the people. And people don't talk about it, but it was like, if you look at the pictures of uh, Grozny, the capital, and Aleppo, for example, you could see that, you know, it's the same pattern there, right? The same, basically, picture that they just ruin civilian infrastructure, they ruin residential buildings. Uh, so they don't look at the cost, like human life is worthless. They would just try to, 
And he got away with that, right? So that was an internal uh, conflict within Russia. But then there was this war on Georgia in 2008. So do you know um, that 20% of Georgia is occupied by Russia currently? So there was a war in the 90s. Uh, that's when Georgia lost Abkhazia, a region near the Black Sea. And then there was another war in 2008, just as um, during the Olympics, I think the Beijing Olympics, uh, there was a very short period, like eight days or something, and they, they chopped off another part of Georgia. And then they got away with that as well. And then there was the Crimea, and again, impunity, nothing. Like, people were concerned, there were sanctions, there was this and that. And it kind of reinforced his thinking that he can basically get away with anything. Like, he can do this and that, and the NATO and uh, all other countries will just be okay with that. Um, but... Actually, what happened last year, I think, is quite remarkable uh, due, first of all, to the courage and tremendous mobilization in Ukraine that they have shown that they are ready to fight for their country and they're not giving up any inch of their territory. Uh, I think that commitment to, to winning, I think that told, told me, uh, I think that's, even before the war, I think that was a stupid thing to do, and uh, and that was already programmed for failure. Um, and I was tweeting at that time that Russia will Russia will be in ruins, not not Ukraine. So Russia has already lost the war when it started it. I had no doubt that you know, and they still have no doubt that uh, Ukraine will win this war. So your question is, what would happen? If you know Russia is successful in that way, it just doesn't exist for me. I, I just can't imagine that. I think, and the commitment of the Western leaders, I think that was important too, because they realized that, you know, this is where we need to stop, you know, making concessions. This is where I think if we do that, if we allow, you know, Putin to win in Ukraine, then indeed your question, Aaron, is becomes very valid, right? Then we think about the Baltic states, Poland, Georgia, you know, who knows what he has on his mind, right? So, but after last year, I think that that was an important, you know, again, the price was huge and all this piecemeal uh, support with, with the weapons and how do we support Ukraine, but how do we not allow Putin to lose his face, you know, how do we allow Russia to also not not to lose while Ukraine wins? That was, and I think is to this day, some of the rhetoric that I'm hearing from the West. But I think the consensus is that, uh, and it's absolutely a big, the biggest victory, I think, of Ukraine and all the free people in the world that there is commitment that Putin shall not win this war. I think that the next logical step would be 
how do we commit people, the good people of the world, to help Ukraine win this war and not be too hung up on Putin losing his face because who cares? And he's already lost everything. Um, so Russia already failed. Uh, it's just a matter of time that Ukraine gets back the territories. Um, but Russia, it's just, you know, Ukraine will rebuild. But Russia, I think it's just uh, such a moral catastrophe. And uh, I can't imagine, I can't imagine uh, how how the country will, uh, what, what's the future for Russia then with this whole situation. Mm. So a lot of what's being well, what goes around in, in the Western media, um, not in the Western media, but in independent media is, independent media in the West even, is um, that Russia, well, Putin's only retaliating, doing a retaliation um, because NATO's pushed up to the borders. How much of this is a retaliation or is it more of an excuse for Putin? To move to make a move. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know that um, opinion. Unfortunately, it is still uh, it's maybe not prevailing, but there is still this sentiment that you know there is some truth to this war because NATO was aggressive uh, and expanding, and you know we need to think about that. Uh, I think the the reality is though that. This narrative ignores uh, it ignores the what's the word for it the agency of the independent nations like they have and they should have control over their allegiances alliances and you know who they want to align with right and uh, Putin I think it's probably part of his sincere belief that. He doesn't think that Ukraine or the Baltic states or even you know European states have authority, but that, that the real adversary is the US and the US manipulate the EU and they tell them what to do and so on. And this expansion is perceived as indeed the not the choice of the nations, but something that US is pushing and manipulating the countries to accept, which is nonsense, obviously, right? Because you can easily, like, like you can look at, and we have a, a lot of examples of uh, soft power, right? Uh, even Turkey and in Turkey's influence in, in the cent in Central Asian countries, they would build universities there, they would invest they would commit and they kind of try to show their like benevolence and they don't just want to come and appoint some puppet government in some country uh, because they know that's impossible. People will discover that, people will be not happy and that will be... But still, I think Russia and the, the politicians have chosen this way of thinking that there is no, like, these are not independent actors. Ukraine is a fake state. 
they they were like one of his speeches was claiming that Ukraine was invented by Lenin. <laughs> so again, I don't know who gives them this information because obviously Ukraine was where Russia originated from. Kiev Rus was the capital, the the original state, and then and then this idea that they're not normal, that they are puppet regimes. So it's ridiculous. I think it could make sense even maybe for some time, uh, but obviously Ukraine had already changed their first president after after the Crimea. So they have rotation of power, they have change of power. And then the big surprise, and I think one of the biggest failures, again, this delusion, this misinformation, I think was um, the idea that Ukrainians will be meeting Russian soldiers as liberators. I don't know if they really believed in that. I think, I tend to think that they honestly believed in that. But that's again ridiculous. Like, they don't want to be, they never wanted to be associated. Although they work sometimes, we have big economic ties. We had the economic ties, and a lot of people from Ukraine worked in Russia and still work in Russia. And But this idea that they are not independent as they are ultimately. It's very sad, you know, that um, this notion is reiterated in the liberal press. So if, if that's true, Cam, I'm, uh, it doesn't make me happy. I think that that's a big problem we need to deal with. We need to think how to, like, it's a shameful narrative, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With anything, you're always going to get people who have a theory, right? On on any on anything, um, and on, on, on definitely with with wars as well. So you mentioned that the narrative that we're hearing in it's not through uh, mainstream media we're, we're hearing this narrative. It's mainly through independent sources, like through YouTube. Um, so, like my concern is in the West, there's a lot of mistrust with mainstream media. So anything that's all over the mainstream media, automatically independent journalists or independent news broadcasters on YouTube or Rumble or whatever website you want to go to, they always have a counter narrative towards the mainstream media. Um, and I think me and Cameron have spoke about it in the past. I think independent journalism is great and it's good because it puts out another voice that other people can listen to. But also at the same, also at the same time, I think it can be very dangerous because when people have so much distrust for the mainstream media, they will look at independent journalists and listen to everything that they say. Whereas sometimes what they say isn't the correct narrative and what should be um, believed and could be yeah, misinformation. Um, so it is a, it is a, it is a concern because I feel like these days there's so much misinformation around you don't know where to go to and what to trust. Um, whereas I like to listen to all sorts of information. Um, 
I'll probably never figure out what the actual truth is, but I believe talking to people like you, like real people who are there or closer to what's going on than we are, would get a closer insight to what the truth actually is. Yeah. You are so right, Aaron. I think the um, this trend that you mentioned, I think it's accelerated also uh, during the pandemic. Like people were genuinely skeptical about the vaccines and the, the right treatments or the restrictions. They didn't make sense to people. And they went out to seek out uh, unofficial or different sorts of sources. And that could be really dangerous. I think you guys have uh, have found, I think it's the best format for independent source to have real people in your studio. Because, you know, the, uh, the viewers can ac- assess, you know, who is there and what they're talking. And that, that doesn't come across as some manipulated sensationalist, you know, type of source and it's difficult especially this year after maybe a few weeks back after this chat GPT was introduced because now if you don't see the face like they could obviously fake faces now and videos and audio and everything but um, I'm now very skeptical with what I read on the internet because I know that the genie is out there and you never know who has created story a story, and they can even, you know, include all the sources into the story in the footnotes, and they could appear quite credible for you if you're looking for independent sources. But they will be bullshit, right? So I think the main skill now for people, and maybe few people realize that that we are living in a very different world this year after this chat GPT and we need to be we've always needed to be vigilant but we need now to be extra vigilant about what we read and who we trust and is there a real person behind the story or is there a fake algorithm that has learned to deceive us yeah that's where that element of trust has gone sort of out the window where there's always I guess it comes from the way the government's run as well as in the West is there's always another reason why something's happening. So when the government says this is happening, a lot of people rush to be like, yeah, but, but why? And start looking into the, the background of, well, why is that happening? And I don't know a lot with, with Biden, there's a lot of, um, it's a, well, it's a lot to do with money, right? Um, backdoor deals, shady deals where money's getting made on the back of a story that they're putting out in the mainstream media. Um, so yeah, I 100% agree. It's you, You've got to do, you can't just take things at face value. You need to do a bit of external research. You're going to hear, a, you can go on YouTube and hear a million different opinions on one subject and none of them can even, well, it's like with anything anyway, you've always got three sides to a story. If, there's one side, the other side, and then there's the truth. But you, you, you're not going to actually experience the truth through any conversation um, unless you were there. That's the only way you can actually experience 100% authentic truth. But by getting all of the opinions that we possibly can, 
and looking at it from a holistic view, we're not just forced down a single narrative where we're just forced to well think well, like you said in the USSR, you were sort of um forced to think a certain way. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. something well obviously we need to avoid. Yeah, but I'm glad that this is not a prevailing narrative, Aaron, that this is uh, alternative sources. But the, the, this is the problem with them, with alternative sources, because the Kremlin um, uses, the, and they invest a lot in, into these influencers, bloggers, uh, fake accounts, and they have like big budget for that, and they can spin these narratives very easily. I think it's important that we don't amplify them and we, again, learn how to differentiate who is who. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so a bit of a side question, but how was your time in Belfast and how mm-hmm. long were you in Belfast for? So it was three years and I was relocated uh, by a company um, and I worked um, as a learning advisor so I helped managers to you know to help their teams learn and to find learning resources and so on to build good habits for learning as well so the the city is beautiful the, the I, I loved it there and the the climate the people the city, um, I've not been a lot in in many cities in the UK. Just you know, obviously London, but uh, Edinburgh, but but haven't been to Manchester and and such. But I liked it. You know, the the climate that the locals were complaining about. It was just perfect for for me. And we um, like the walks. The you know everything is. After Moscow, so I lived in Moscow um, for again fifteen or thirteen years, and that that's just a crazy city, like not suitable for uh, for quality life. Like you spend an hour in the subway on the way on commute, and then you go back, and then again one hour, and then you work long hours. And it was not healthy, right? And in Belfast, it was like you could be more productive because of the proximity of uh, everything. Uh, very compact, 15 minutes to the airport. Uh, the history as well is fascinating. And the conflict, uh, you know, is... is There is so much to learn from it. And there is... Uh, there has been I've learned about the this, the history of uh, of Belfast and how it came to the peace agreement, Good Friday Agreement, and how you know amazing transformation that happened after after it. And it's up and coming too. Like the because of the cost of living is not as high as in in England, for example. I think that a lot of uh, Employers are coming to Ireland, to the Republic, and the and to Northern Ireland as well. 
Uh, so it's up and coming in that regard. So obviously Guinness and uh, uh, the pop culture. I really like that. Um, my first gay pride. So we didn't have much of that in Russia. So that was, again, a very cool experience for me. And I've made a lot of friends. Uh, because of English, I think uh, it's it's been much more easy for me to build contact with people, of course. Not just co-workers, but to meet people in different circles. For example, I was part of the Humanist UK uh, gathering and actually the member of UK Humanists for, for the time I, I was in there. Unlike Georgia, where, where people, most people would probably speak Russian here, but you don't want to impose a Russian on them because some of them are not fluent and they don't have to speak Russian with you. And the, the uh, younger people speak English here, but it's, it's difficult generally to grow your network in, in a country like Georgia than in an English-speaking country. Mm. Why did you <clears throat> move to Georgia? Uh, different considerations. I think the main motivation was not to go back to Russia because I kind of felt that, you know, the country has gone the wrong way and I haven't uh, had a good feeling about, like, all the crazy laws and um, repressions and uh, so and I was looking like uh, what could be the possible countries not far from like I had a plan with my partner to actually establish a startup in Estonia so but Estonia is part of the EU and you need to have a visa. And before the visa, you need to come up with a minimum viable product, an MVP, and you have to work on the concept. So we thought that Georgia would be a temporary country for us to actually to, to build something and then to apply for the startup program and move. So we lived for three something years here and then we moved to to Russia because of the health issues and the family issues and we we, we had to be with our families for some time in Russia so we stayed half a year in 2021 and then we returned back to Russia in January and then we were again getting ready for the move to Estonia but then in February, the war started and we didn't have the visa and we didn't have anything. So we had to return back to Georgia. So basically the story of ruined plans, personal plans as well, but I'm not complaining. I think that, you know, um, compared to what stuff is happening in the in Ukraine and it's it's nothing so. We'll deal with that. Do you still have a, a lot of family in that live in Russia? And are they considering moving out of Russia? Or... Yeah, the family, but uh, my parents are quite elderly and they wouldn't want to move and they enjoy their dacha, the garden. 
So it will be difficult to move them and they don't want. Um, my brother and his family, uh, they've never considered leaving the country and they are, you know, they think that that's where, although I'm not sure about my nieces, the nieces might be thinking, at least maybe one niece could be thinking something, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I think they are, they don't feel like there is a need for them to leave. It's not that they're happy with, what, with what, what's going on, of course, but uh, I'm kind of person, once I lived in the free society, <laughs> once you studied in the US, you lived in the UK, and you, you can't compare things. You don't want to go back to the USSR or North Korea, whatever they're building there. So I had my mental goodbye to, to Russia in 2016, although it's frankly honest to detach yourself from what's going on. And when this war started, uh, I was feeling, as I think most good people were feeling responsible for it, right? Because you, although you didn't live there on a permanent basis, uh, but it's still like, I feel that I somehow allowed it to happen. Maybe I was not resisting enough or raising awareness about this situation, but it's, it's the sense of shame or responsibility. It's just, it's daunting. Um, again, not for everyone, but just for me personally. Yeah. That's, a, just, that's having an attachment with the country. So it's quite a natural feeling for a lot of people. As you say, it won't be everyone, but there'll be more than just you who will have a, share that same feeling. Yeah. So I'm learning like to discover my new identity now. Like, am I Russian? Or like, it's, it's quite interesting, uh, even from the self-identification, like, how do you, like, to what extent do you need to be responsible for what's happening there? Like, you left the country in 2016, but then when this war started, I went out into the streets. I started to distribute leaflets against the war. I started to bring flowers to, there, there are some monuments after the Second World War for different city uh, cities that uh were heroic during the war and I found the monument to Ukrainian cities. I left flowers there and I was trying to speak with people also. Um, but I felt that it was just all happening so quickly. We just have to pack our bags and to, to move quickly. So just going back, back to the war, how I know it's it's a difficult question to answer. What I'm going to ask, um, I know world leaders can't even think of a a real uh, proposal for this. But how do you? What is your ideal view on how the war ends? How how do you think we can get the war to end? Mm. How in terms of like the ideal way? I think the ideal way would be. <laughs> 
for Ukraine, obviously, to um, to get their territories back and to to be victorious, um, and then also to to really bring the war criminals to justice. That needs to happen, and then the whole Russia again. Um, you see, because I compared Russia to, like I said, it's a fascist regime. So there are some elements of Nazism because they think that um, Russia is a like uh, is a major nation or whatever. It's a superior nation and it has to rule over this huge territory. And also they have claims for the neighboring territories because they don't feel safe for some reason. And they don't think that people are independent. So there is an element of like this colonial um, nature in this war. And I think that that needs to be uh, addressed. Like when the Germany, when Germany lost, uh, was defeated in the Second World War, there was a process of de-Nazification, right? So a lot of Germans were not aware of the terrible atrocities that were happening. Uh, and a lot of, some of them supported, and I think most of them supported, so they, they, they worked as a nation, they worked through that experience. And I think part of the victory should be uh, Russia going through some kind of transformation and internalizing, reflecting on what happened, like seeing the criminals punished. I think that's important. Uh, and also like a program to 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 make the country peaceful, to bring it to peace, and to let go of these uh, world domination or Eurasia domination ideas. Um, that's, I think, but I'm sure, you know, the about like the first part is probably it's difficult, right? But it, you kind of can imagine how that happens like more weapons to Ukraine and helping them advance their um, forces and to regain the territories. But it's completely unfashionable to me, an idea like how do you change the mindset of millions of Russians like so that they don't do that again and they have, you know, they have realized the crime and the, the aggression for what it is, and they learn from it. So, and you know, fascinating also that I spent 13 years or 15 years in learning and development and helping people learn and grow, right? And then I'm observing people degradation, like people unlearning how to think for themselves being uncritical, being, you know, uh, closing in their bubbles. And, and that, that's, I think, is, a, is a, also an interesting topic in itself. How did that happen? How has it come to a place where, like in the Soviet Union, people didn't trust the state. 
and they learned to read newspapers. Like they, they didn't have alternative sources or internet that then, but they read the new, they've learned to read the newspapers uh, between the lines. You know, and when they, the party said that this is a big victory, this is this and that, people were skeptical. They were genuinely thinking that actually the message is not at all. So that was the prevailing attitude, not to trust the newspapers or official sources, not to take them with a grain of salt at least. But now people have access to information, unlimited access. And they can do their research and they can find sources. But when they hear this propaganda from state television, they're not critical. Like, I'm not saying they all, but a lot of people, most people probably, they, they tend to trust propaganda. And it's just so fascinating to me that uh, this chance is just wasted. Like, you could have, even when I was uh, staying with my parents, I subscribed them to an independent newspaper which was later banned in Russia but it was circulating up until 2022. Nova Gazeta you probably heard and they have an English-speaking edition as well um, and now they work from abroad they, they publish from abroad and I know that they don't like internet they wouldn't read it on the internet so that was a hard copy the newspaper was coming to them and they could have read the stories about what's actually happening, but they chose not to. Uh, so it's quite painful in terms of uh, observing people being uncritical and even turning a blind eye on things and to try to ignore things that are happening and you know they they could have they should have known about them, but they chose not to. Um, I think a lot of realization has come to them now. Like I'm speaking about my relatives, but um, a lot of people after I think last year, I think they realized that there is like the propaganda is not to be trusted, and you can see by the opinion polls that. Few Russians, fewer Russians are now watching the official news. So at some point, I think the level of absurd, absurdity in the state, state media and trying to show like some sort of victories and that everything is going according to plan. People have, you know, called out the bullshit and they don't want to take it anymore. Um, but it took the war and how many lives lost before they realized that. What sort of worries me about the war is the escalation of the war. Um, I did read, I think it was last week, that the UK is sending um, uranium depleted missiles to destroy, so they used to destroy tanks because they hit into it. It's a lot more powerful than a normal uh, missile. Um, obviously, it's got it's uranium depleted, which means it's radioactive. Um, and Putin has responded to that and said it's so it's basically bordering on the line of nuclear warfare. Um, and I think those were his 
reasons for putting um he put some nuclear missiles in Belarus, right? I think you mentioned before. Um I think that was what his reason was for doing so. Um but put in the war to sort of like if Russia win or Ukraine win to one side, like I think the escalation of the war is a big concern where it could affect the whole planet if it does go to um if nuclear weapons are are used yeah that's a big indeed concern i think it's uh like we've never before like maybe since the cuban missile crisis we've never experienced anything like that i think it's we should take it seriously but at the same at the same time i think it's important to be realistic about um you know and knowing the capability and the the mindset i think is, is important like he's been blackmailing for so long already and um i think that at some point uh politicians or the at least the western the native politicians have made it clear that they don't accept it anymore like you can't do that and i think the chinese uh leader is on this side as well and he made it very clear that it's not acceptable and i think the indian prime minister too like the world leaders have i think told putin on different channels that this is not acceptable and don't even mention that because there will be no uh victory it's impossible like you, you can only destroy the world everyone and, and i think that he's not the one like if we talk about putin i think to to me it's obvious he's not the one who would do that who, who, who press the button because like we talked about covid and his paranoia and how he's shaking uh for his life i think it's not the type of like a person who would do that and obviously if if you look at the mechanism of how this works you have to have a full chain of command on board with that and he doesn't have that so there is uh i think the army although they haven't talked about that officially but different through different sources we know that even last year they were very skeptical of the success of this of this war and they just um uh, they just couldn't have the guts to stop it then and they went along with it um but after what happened this year they have realized that the capability is not there like the like from the technical standpoint it wouldn't work probably because they have been relying on their best whatever military technology in the conventional war and it hasn't proved to be effective and then i think people are skeptical that the old nuclear arsenal is uh, is in in the good shape for any, like not the right adjective good shape but in the uh in the working state to be to be used 
So I think the chain of command will, will never allow that. So there will be always someone, I think, who, who has who will think for for themselves and they wouldn't just push the button or pass pass on the order. I think it's not doable now. I think Putin is in is in isolation. He knows that. Uh, he has zero support apart from I think what's it? Uh, Venezuela and North Korea. Um, so the world leaders have indicated the consequences of whatever he's planning to do. Uh, and I think he has abandoned eventually this idea of responding to any threat with it. Although you can hear that on this propaganda, uh, on the state propaganda, they would talk crazy shit actually. Sorry, my apologies for my language. But, you know, there is a brilliant um, blogger on, uh, on Twitter who dissects the propaganda uh, and this nuclear talk crazy talk that's happening on, on Russian television about like we will uh, destroy the UK, we will destroy the US, we will do this and that. And this. These are angry delusional clowns I think but they're dangerous. It's not to dismiss that like there, there is zero chance that this will work like this chain of command and everything but I'm really skeptical that it would. But it's crazy that it has come, come to that. So I hope the minds better than mine, better than ours, would, would have calculated the risks and have told the consequences of what awaits any crazy person with the nuclear arsenal. Without any escalation of the war where do you see it leading to next what what or do, do you see it escalating further but not to the point of nuclear warfare do you see nato troops coming in um i personally don't see like i was afraid as everyone uh was when it all began and i was afraid that the western leaders would blink and that they would buy this you know, blackmail, and they would like, okay, we're not ready to fight, you know, over Ukraine, and we can, you know, make concessions, whatever, talk Ukraine into peace. That's also a ridiculous narrative that someone can decide uh, on what terms this war needs to be ended, other than the Ukrainians. Like, they are paying the, the ultimate price for their victory, and it's only up to them to decide. So I don't see escalation to the, you know, the big nuclear thing. I think that these, you know, the depleted uranium, uh, again, this is Kremlin's propaganda pushing that this is escalation, but actually it is not. Like, there is a UN document saying that this type of material is not considered to be nuclear weapon so and it's just something that they try to like they create always they always create an excuse to be offended by or to to be like feeling that they are 
it's desperation. I think it's difficult uh, to deal with that. Um, like to, but we shouldn't take seriously like all these exaggerations, their manipulation about like this is escalation. I mean, what is, define escalation? At what point this war is not escalation? Like they have destroyed already so many buildings, the cities, just wiped out cities. So to me, and, and Ukrainians, they think they, they, they done a poll among Ukrainians and they, they said that like 80% or, or so, they, they're ready to fight in spite of the nuclear threat. So even if they use something, they're ready to, you know, to, to defend everything and they, they wouldn't give up. So I think that the escalation has been beyond already possible to me. I, I, I think that the military activity, I think it's important maybe to use the, the right language for that. So when they liberate, they, they're going to liberate their territories. And I think calling that escalation is not correct. I think. And they will try to spin that as escalation. Like, like they would say, no way Ukrainian flag will be in Sebastopol in the Crimea. But, and they will say, this is escalation, this is escalation. But you've already done all the escalation. And you've been warned what, what to expect from, from, from this. And the government, Zelensky, and the you know, chief of... Uh, the military, I think they've been very clear that their goal is to liberate their, their country. So I don't think that it's right to like to fall for this narrative that um, this would be escalation, like them liberating their country. Um, so as, for example, issuing a warrant on Putin is not escalation. It's just the way that things should work. It's 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 all it's also a big mental game I think, that we need to be conscious of. Like they think that, and Gary Kasparov actually, uh, the chess champion, uh, he's been very vocal about like the strategy of this of this game, this mental game with them. So he's been calculating the risks. Like every time you say you don't want escalation, actually you are giving uh, advantage to, to Putin to actually up their stake or to up their game. And he takes that as a weakness. And this is part of the mob mentality as well. Like you don't show that you are weak. You, need, you, don't, have, you don't have the right to blink. You need to be very firm with them and you need to show the consequences. And that's, I think, the only way that uh, we could win this war if we are also mentally prepared. Yeah, that's very true, that it's majority of it is a mind game. Um, so when you were talking earlier about um, how Germany had the Nazis, did the USSR take Nazis from Nazi Germany to work in there? Yes, uh, I think there were 
prisoners of war, uh, and they were actually working to, to rebuild some of the cities. In my home uh, city, Volgograd, which is uh, more known as Stalingrad, there were a lot of buildings, you know, rebuilt or built, new buildings built with these. All right. Well, shall we wrap things up? Yeah, cheers, Bob. That was really good. It's been really insightful, yeah, today. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Uh, that was my pleasure. Um, it's always good to bounce some of my thoughts as well with someone. So it's, it's good to, you know, to be connected. Oh, great. Thank you for coming on. Um, see you later, everyone. Yeah. Cheers, Bob. See, see you later, everyone. All the best. Bye-bye.